Well, good morning, Platt Park Church. Thank you for that, Susie. I am honored and I'm excited to be with you this morning. We find ourselves in the second Sunday of the season of Lent, and Susie set us up really beautifully for this last week, that this is a time of confession and it's a time of examination. And if you're like me, when you're faced with the discipline that examination and confession require, you can tend to go a little bit towards um, one of two extremes. On one end, this is what I like to call the spiritual endurance athletes. Um, this is where we go to excessive suffering, where we're trying to really flex our spiritual muscles during Lent. And this is the person when you're like, I think I'm going to fast from sweets. They're like, oh, I gave up all sugar. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that feels a lot, but okay. All right. And you're looking at how hard you can possibly make this season. And do not get me wrong, there's a very, very real sense in Lent that we are companioning Jesus in his suffering. But what we are not doing and what we can miss when we go toward the excessive suffering end of the spectrum is that we are not trying to earn our status with God. We are not trying to earn God's favor, God's love, God's acceptance. And we miss that one of the main invitations of the season of Lent is to know God as God is more deeply. On the other end of the spectrum, some of you might find yourselves here, is that we're overlooking for loopholes. Like, we're not arguing that Lent is hard. I think we can all agree that Lent is hard. Um, but we're looking to make it, like, maybe a little less hard. Like, not easy, but, like, maybe a little bit less hard. And in the spirit of Lenten confession, I just want to tell you, my family traditionally has fasted from sweets for Lent. Not sugar, sweets. And one year, we were going on a cruise for spring break, and if you've been on a cruise, you know this. Like, sweets are basically a food group on a cruise. And I was not about to miss out on six straight nights of an all-you-can-eat death-by-chocolate buffet for some Lenten fast. So I decided to find a loophole. And what I did was found a, just a random week in January, just seven straight days in January, gave up sweets for those days, then during the cruise took, like, a Lenten intermission, like, swapped the two, swapped the weeks, and then, this is a true story, had the audacity to tell people that I actually thought it was the harder way because I'd given up sweets for three weeks and it was really hard, and, but I kind of got used to it after three weeks. You know, that's how long it takes to make a habit. And then I went so hard for those six days of the cruise and just had sweets all the time. And then I had like a few more weeks before Easter. And so it was actually, you know what, I think it was harder. I think it was just the harder way of Lent. So... And what we do, what can happen when we go on to this end of the spectrum is that we miss one of the other main invitations of Lent, which is to know ourselves more honestly. We're invited to know God more deeply in Lent, and we're invited to know ourselves more honestly in Lent. And as we do those two things, the ultimate call of Lent is to come home. It's to come home to the truth of who God is. It's to come home to the truth of who God's created us to be and to live more fully out of that truth into the world that we find ourselves in. And the traditional metaphor for this Lenten journey is that of the wilderness. Susie preached on this powerfully last week, that Jesus spends his first 40 days in preparation for his public ministry to begin fasting in the wilderness. And he is preparing for his ministry, and he is also reenacting the 40-year journey that the Israelites take from Egypt into the promised land. And ultimately what Jesus is doing here is showing us he's redeeming that journey. He's setting the pattern, I have come to redeem this. 
And the wilderness is a time for us, both for Jesus and for us and the Israelites, that in Scripture we see we're stripped of these things that make us comfortable. We're stripped of the things that we put our trust in that are actually not of God. And so the wilderness is a time where we honestly examine our relationship to things that we don't like to talk about, like money and like stuff and like status. And we let God lead us to what's underneath those things, the desire for security, for power, for control, for belonging, for love. These things that I'm looking to these cheap substitutes to fulfill when only God can satisfy those things. Only God can satisfy my need for love. And ultimately, the wilderness is a place of freedom. It's a place where we wrestle, where we examine, where we confess, so that we can live more freely, more unencumbered as the people that God has created us to be for the sake of what God is doing in us and through us in the world. And the beauty of following the traditional church calendar is that we need this every single year. Every year we need to come back around to a time of the wilderness. We need a a time of examination, a time of confession, a time where God invites us to return home. That's, That's good every year. This year has been like no other year. And so Lent in a pandemic is like, I don't even know how we talk about that because that is a totally different level of wilderness. And the reality is that while some of us have been in the wilderness before, most, in most of our lives, never before have we collectively so thoroughly and so quickly been stripped of things that have made us feel safe and feel comfortable and what we know. And we find ourselves now as a community in the wilderness together. And simply by virtue of living through the last calendar year on this planet, all of us are primed for an incredibly transformational Lenten season, if we're open to it. The only two requirements for me this year is to have lived through the last year, which I hope most of you have, and to be open to what God is going to do in this season. And today's lectionary readings are right there with us in the wilderness, and they're asking the question, what does it mean to have faith? What does it mean to be a people of faith in this world? What does it mean to live by faith? And we'll consider that by looking at the life of one of the heroes of the Old Testament, Abraham. Now, Abraham is literally the godfather of the Jews, and for us, he's our spiritual ancestor, And we meet him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. If you have a Bible, come with me there now. The Lord comes to Abraham. At this point, he's named Abram and says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. Right away, we learn two very important things about Abram, Abraham. One, this is a man who deeply, deeply trusts God. I think when we read scripture enough, it sometimes gets easy to miss the humanity that is happening in these words. But the reality is if God came to you and said, go to the land I will show you, I think you might have like a few questions. Like, what do I pack? Is it warm? Is it cold? Like, how long am I going? 
what way do I even leave out of my house? Is it left or is it right? Like, go to the land I will show you is vague at best. This is a man who trusts God deeply. We're going to hold on to that because that's going to come up again and again for us. Two, God's promise, I will make you into a great nation and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, has an inherent assumption that Abraham will have kids, that he will have descendants after him. In Genesis chapter 15, God reiterates and then expands on this call. This is when we hear God say the famous Abraham line, as numerous as the stars are in the sky, so your descendants will be beautiful. Come with me now to Genesis chapter 17, where God makes a covenant promise with Abraham. We see this covenant promises happen throughout the Old Testament. We see Jesus enacting a new covenant. What I want you to know about a covenant promise is three things. It is initiated, it is enacted, and it is sustained by God. It is initiated, it is enacted, and it is sustained by God. Usually there's a sign of the covenant. When God makes a covenant promise with Noah, it's a rainbow. That's pretty cool. Um, this is like a little less cool. The sign that God makes with Abraham is circumcision. Um, we're not going to go into that, but like that's a little bit less like a rainbow. And what, what he does, there's a sign that humans engage in. And the reality and the bulk of the promise rests on God in the covenant. As you read through chapter 17, you see a few things. One, the language of descendants and fatherhood is repeated again and again to Abraham, to Abram. This is where he becomes Abraham, actually, which literally in Hebrew means father of many. This is beautiful until you think about the reality. At this point, Abraham is 99. We find that in verse 1 of chapter 17. He's 99. He and his wife have approximately zero kids. So over and over for 20 years, God has come to him with these big promises of father of many nations. You're going to have all these descendants. Kings will come from you. And Abraham and his wife are looking around and thinking, okay, like we have no kids. Like how do you have all these things happen through us, through our descendants, if we have this many kids? In verse 16 of chapter 17, God says that God will bless Abraham's wife and she will bear him a son. And when Abraham hears this in verse 17, he laughs. He laughs at God. He falls face down and laughs to himself and says, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham says to God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Abraham laughs at this because this guy is a realist. It's not that he's ignoring reality when he has faith in God. He is a deep realist. He recognizes that he is old. He recognizes that his wife is old. He understands there's a window for this sort of childbearing thing, and they are way far past it. And we know from Genesis 12 that Abraham is a man who deeply trusts in God. So when he laughs, it's not that he's irreverent. It's not that he doesn't trust But what the writer of Genesis is trying to show us is that God is promising something so wild and so crazy that only God would be able to fulfill it. Only God can create life from Sarah's womb that has been dead. And I don't want you to miss this because the writer from the beginning of scripture all the way to the very end, the writers are saying, hey, 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 listen to me. God is in the business of bringing life from death. This is what God does. 
What we celebrate at Easter is not a one-off. It's the culmination of a God who's been doing this all along. And it's the, the sign of a God who will continue to do this in our life too. Scripture is showing us from beginning to end who God is. God goes on with Abraham in chapter 17 to clarify that actually, no, the blessing's not for Ishmael. If you want to know more about Ishmael, there's a real spicy chapter before this about how Abraham and Sarah try to take this promise into their own hands. Um, But no, Sarah's going to bear him a son of her own. They'll name him Isaac. The promise is going to come through Isaac, on and on and on. What happens in 17 is God leaves Abraham, gives him this promise, and Abraham that very day, we see in verse 23, obeys enacts the sign of circumcision on himself and everyone in his household, all the males. His obedience is immediate, but the fulfillment of God's promise is not immediate. We don't see Sarah bust into the room in the next verse and yell that she's pregnant, like waving around a test. He does does see Isaac in the next year, just like God says. But he does not see the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. He will be the father of many nations. He doesn't see that in his lifetime. And what we learn about Abraham is that his faith is not in the promise that God gives him. His faith is in the person of God who made the promise. Come with me now to Romans 4 where Paul is talking about Abraham. We're in verse 18. And Paul says it like this about Abraham. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what God had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in God who raised Christ Jesus our Lord from the dead. What Paul and what Abraham are telling us about what it means to be a people of faith is that faith is not a formula. And honestly, I wish that it was. Like, I just kind of want it to be. I wish that it was. I can do formulas, I can do rubrics, I can do steps. And when we're faced with a transcendent God, I think it's just honest to know that our temptation as humans is to try and make that God smaller, to make that God someone that we can understand a little bit more. And that's why, partly why the wilderness is so scary, and it's so disorienting. And if you felt that the last year, you're not alone. And that's exactly why the wilderness is so necessary, because the truth that we see in Abraham is the truth that we see throughout Scripture. It's the truth that Paul is bringing up to us today. It's that God is wild and big and different than we thought God might be. And true biblical faith is honestly always, always the faith of Abraham. And it's surrender. Abraham is willing to say yes to a God who is on the move. Go to the land I will show you is a God on the move. It's what we see Moses and the Israelites do, step by shaky step in the wilderness for 40 straight years. Go to the promised land. Go to the land I will show you. It's what we see Ruth say when she says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. 
Where you stay, I will stay. It's what we see the disciples do when Jesus says, hey, come and follow me, and they leave everything that they know to follow this unknown teacher. Are you willing to say yes to a God who says, go to the land I will show you? Are you willing to surrender to that kind of a God? Faith is also submission to a God who acts differently than I would act, than you would act, if you had the power. And now submission is one of those words in our history that's been unfairly weaponized. So if you're coming in here and you hear that word and it brings up some very real baggage for you, what I want you to hear me say today is that all submission means in this context is that are we like Abraham, willing to yield to God when it comes to how God fulfills God's promises? God gives Abraham these big promises, and his reality is infertility. You will be the father of many nations. Reality is you have no kids for a long time. He's 100 when Isaac is born. Are we willing, like Abraham, to submit to how God would fulfill God's promises to us? Promises like, I will be with you always. Promises like, in this world you will have trouble. It's a nice one. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Promises like, nothing is impossible for me. Promises like Jesus says to Martha in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? We see this in throughout Scripture, notably in the prophet Isaiah chapter 55, where God says, hey, my ways, they're not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and my thoughts than yours. We celebrate this during Advent, but we see this in the person of Mary, the submission. When Gabriel comes to her and says what is going to happen to her, and she says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And the ultimate example we have of this is Jesus, right? It's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane hours before he's about to go through the journey to the cross and the crucifixion. He is on his knees in agony to the point that he is sweating literal drops of blood saying, please, God, please, God, please, God, please, 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 if there's any, any other way, please do it. And yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's submission. We are invited to ask and to wrestle and to beg God. And yet, am I willing ultimately to submit to your ways looking different than how I would have them look if I were you, God? The essence of faith that we see from Abraham is that it's trust in the person of God. Christian faith is not an agreement to ideas. It's not committing to a set of rules. We don't simply surrender to the historical figure of Jesus, and we don't simply submit to a moral code. Those are pieces, but that's not the essence of our faith. The promise of Abraham, the promise of God to Abraham is the promise of God through all of Scripture. I will be your God and you will be my people. Are you willing to follow me? Are you willing to trust me? And this kind of faith is personal because our God is personal. Our faith rests in the character of God. The 
writer of Hebrews defines faith as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And Abraham embodies that. He continues to follow, continues to obey, continues to stay open because he trusts in the person of God to ultimately be good. His faith is not in God's promises. It's in God's person. Now, this doesn't mean we'll always see it or be able to feel it. That's part of the surrender. And it doesn't mean we'll like it or be able to explain it. That's part of the submission. And the truth is that I can say this, and when it's things are going well in our lives, we can say, amen, that's good. I'm with you. But when things are not going as we would have them go, when we live through a year like we've lived through this last year, this kind of faith is incredibly hard incredibly hard because honestly I don't want to surrender to a God who's on the move most of the time I don't want to submit to a God who acts differently than I would if I had that power or how I want God to act I don't want to journey through the wilderness I'm tired of the wilderness I want to set up my tent and I want to live right here forever where I can trust not in the person of God, but I can trust in my control. I can trust in my competency. I can trust in my money. I can trust in my routines. I can trust in stocked grocery store shelves. I can trust in the freedom to gather and be with people whenever I want to. I can trust in my own physical health. And the human temptation is that I don't want to trust in the person of God I want to trust in the person of me. I want to trust in myself and what I can control and what I can see and the God that I'm remaking in my own image who does exactly what I would do if I had the power, exactly what I would do if I were God. And that's idolatry. Charles Victor talks about that so much. That's our temptation. I don't want to trust in the person of God. I want to trust in myself and the God that I'm remaking in my own image the God who blesses my desire for control and competency and security in the world that I can, I can see. The God who instead of journeying through the wilderness says, yeah, set up your tent right here where you feel safe. And this last year has shaken us awake to realize that we are in the wilderness and that we have to examine what our faith is in because as we've seen the world around us change completely in a lot of ways, We've been given a great gift. Those of you who have walked through death, you know this. You know this. You have the gift of seeing more clearly the illusion that we put our trust in, of the things that we put our trust in that aren't God. The gift of the last season, the gift of the last year, is that we more clearly can see the things that we have put our trust in that are not God. Clap Park, this is our Exodus moment. This is the time where we are in the wilderness. We're in that liminal space where we've left what we know and we're not yet in where we're going to go. And don't hear me say that all the things that we want to come back aren't going to come back. I think we will go to concerts again and those things that we want. I do think a lot of that will, the, the things that we're aching to return will come back. And yet, 
right now we're together in the wilderness as God and God is coming to us and asking, are you willing to follow here? Are you willing to surrender to me and say yes to a God who's on the move? Are you willing to submit to me doing things that are different than how you would do them? And ultimately, are you willing to follow me to freedom? Remember, this is about freedom. Are you willing me to, to are you willing to follow me to the land I will show you? Because it's good there. It's good there. And the question is, do you trust God to be good? Do you trust God to be loving and gentle and kind? Do you know that? Do you trust that God is writing a good story with a good ending no matter how dark and hard and sad the chapter that you're in is? Do I trust at the end of the day that God is going to bring life from death? And the truth is that we're in a season of death. And I'm not just talking about COVID, although those numbers are staggering. I'm talking about that we have watched the world as we've known it die in a lot of ways. And so we cannot forget when we're in the wilderness and we're disoriented and we're tired, because we are, I am too. We can't forget that Lent is a journey towards Easter, towards the ultimate display of God saying, I am a God who brings life from death. This is what I do. This is the God that we're following. This is the God that our faith is in. This is the God that when we say, I will trust in you, this is what we trust in, that you are a God who can bring life from death. And this is the conversation that you're invited into during Lent. Do I believe you? Do I trust you? Am I willing to surrender? Am I open to submit? Take that to prayer in your conversation with God. Don't miss the gift of this wilderness season that you're having. Do I believe that you can bring life from death? Because remember, the ultimate invitation that God is giving us is to come home. God's not mad. God's not surprised by any of these things that are coming up for us. God's saying, I see you, I know you, I know everything there is to know about you. And I love you. And I'm for you. Bring this into conversation. Let's talk about it and come home so that I can lead you to a place that is worth going. Friends, this is a good story with a good about a good God and it has a good ending no matter how dark this chapter is. And so don't miss the invitation to come home. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this wilderness season, as hard as it is that we find ourselves in. Guide us over the next weeks of Lent to know you more deeply and to know ourselves more honestly. You see our weariness, God. You see our desire to go back to what we've known. Help us to remember that this time is about freedom. 
and your invitation for us to come home to the truth and live more freely and fully out of who you created us to be. Remind us, God, that you bring life from death and that you are the God in whom we trust. It's in your name we pray.